0: Thanks, Jonathan. Perspective. Some of you will remember two weeks ago when we be- began exploring this confusing and difficult parable that I introduced it by talking about <coughs> perspective. So these two trees, in fact, are exactly the same size. But these converging lines create a perspective that makes it difficult for us to see that reality. Perspective dominates our understanding of things. Perspective is not always negative like this, but it's and it's not always positive, but it's important to understand how powerful it is. And be willing to at certain times acknowledge that our perspective may be holding us back from more authentic understanding. And this is especially true when it comes to reading Scripture. In the last two weeks, we have begun to see just how much influence our perspective has had on our understanding of this parable. So many of us have thought of it as... And an economic type of parable with a capitalistic understanding because of our Western influence and our Western perspective. But we're learning, well, that's really not what this parable has been about at all. Jesus told all of his parables to call into question the human understanding of God, which at some level is calling into question our perspective because that's where we get so much of our understanding of God. And this becomes so much clearer. As we approach the point in the story where the king deals with the unfaithful servant. Sir, here's your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Let's do a quick reminder. And to help people catch up that haven't been here for the first two weeks. So I can't get into the details. You're just going to, if you're questioning what I'm saying, that's okay. Just go back the last two weeks and maybe there'll be some answers there. We have realized that this parable is about radical relationship with God and living out radical relationship in the world around us. The miners are the wonderful gospel of God who died and rose again to save us and to offer us that radical relationship with God. The revered Coptic theologian said this about the minors. Sorry, those are the ten minors he gave. Montal Miskin said, Faith, hope, and love, the vital components of the unearned salvation by grace that they have freely received. This is what these minors are in the parable. So think of it this way. Jesus Christ died to save the world because he loves us. We can't earn that salvation. We can't buy it. We can't deserve it. We can't pass the test. We can't be winners enough to get it. We can only be lost enough to be found, least enough to be great, and dead enough to be raised again. In other words, we can only believe or trust in this free gift of grace. So in this parable, Jesus is asking the same question that he asked in Luke without a parable. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find people living in radical relationship with God as evidenced in their lives by living like Christ in radical relationship with others. And this exchange now between the king and the faithless servant can really help us with this understanding of the parable. And this exchange also exposes how problematic our Western capitalistic perspective can be and other perspectives that we have about who God is and what he might act like when someone's faithless. Okay? So let's start by listening carefully to what the servant says in his defense of his hiding the minors. He says, Sir, here is your miner. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. Now remember, the servants were asked to do business. And we looked at this last week and what that really means. They were not asked to turn a profit. That's our perspective reading into the parable. They were asked to do business. That's it. To get out in the community around them and demonstrate their allegiance to this nobleman by living in community the way he wanted them to live in community. This nobleman who said he was coming (coughs) back as king. And this was a huge risk in those days, as it is in many parts of the world still today. For if the guy did not come back as king, or he didn't come back at all then these people were risking their lives for being in relationship with them. And we've seen that. In fact, at the end of the parable, which we'll get to next week, even this nobleman says, now those people who didn't want me to rule over them, now that I'm king, bring them here and I'll kill them. And this goes on in the world today. If you happen to support the wrong regime and that regime falls out of favor, you can be risking your lives. So this servant decided to hide. He decided not to do business. He decided not to live as the nobleman asked him to, and to not trust that this nobleman would return as king. And this was his his reasoning. But here's the thing. That reasoning was based purely on his perspective, and it was wrong. It was wrong. Capture this. Listen to the king carefully. I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? These may be two of the most terrifying verses in all of Scripture. By your own words, I will judge you. Think about that. Let me try to paraphrase this for us. You created your own idea of who I am. I gave you a free gift and asked you simply to do business with it. And because of who you think I am, you run and hide instead of living into the reality I offered you. What part of a free gift do you not understand exactly? How do you turn someone who gives so freely into a guy who is exacting, brutal, judgmental, harsh, and concerned with the bottom line? But because you did just that, then that is exactly what I'm going to remain to you. You wanted a vindictive, vengeful king? You can have one. But it is not me who will ever act like that. It is simply your own self-imagined, twisted view of my nature that you can suffer. And I didn't pull this paraphrase out of Midian. King David understood this very phenomenon thousands and thousands of years ago. We heard it in our song this morning. To the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure. But to the crooked, you show yourself twisted. This is very powerful, powerful stuff. No wonder this parable has been turned into nothing but a simple parable about economics and making sure you use the gifts God you Nice job using your gifts, though. I love that poem this morning. Here's Bailey giving us further insight when he writes on this. The psalmist understands that the community's attitudes and ethical behavior influence God's revelation of himself to it. The parable places the blame solely on the servant. The servant's unfaithfulness, which can be read as lack of faith in who, in who God really is, produces a twisted vision of the Master. Both texts affirm that the way we live influences how we see God. So, let's remember why Jesus was telling this parable in the first place. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them the parable, because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. This is the reason Jesus is telling this parable. The disciples were all worked up about the coming kingdom. They thought it was about to happen. And they thought it was going to be all about human-looking justice and human-looking power. They thought it was going to be about God slaying his enemies, not killing them. I mean, slaying his enemies, punishing the wicked, rewarding the chosen few, etc., etc., etc. They were on the way to Jerusalem, where they were celebrating Passover, which was... A remembrance, ultimately, of the very first revolution that the Israelites had when Egypt was overthrown. And they were convinced, remember, they thought this Messiah was going to do things the human way. And destroy Rome and free them. And so Jesus tells this parable. And in this parable, and in other words he said, at this very time as you read through the gospel, Jesus says, well, actually, no, that's not what I'm all about. I'm about dying for the world. Dying for my enemies, not killing them. I'm about loving everyone and willing that none should perish. The Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. God wants all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. I'm about grace, not transaction, for it is by grace you have been saved. I'm about mercy and not punishment. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west so far has he removed our transgressions from us. I'm about forgiveness, not retribution. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. He is about kindness, not terror because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. But you should contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance. And so, in telling this parable, Christ calls into question his audience's understanding of God at that time, because they understood the Messiah is about to overthrow others. And he calls into human understanding of God at all times. You see, mankind has always had this as difficulty with this understanding of God. Always. We are much more prone to understand God because of our own perspective as a God who is much more interested in some form of legalism or what I call transactionalism. If you do the right thing, God rewards you. If you do the wrong thing, God punishes you. Because that God is easier to understand because he's like us. He's like us. This God, who espouses grace and love and forgiveness and mercy, and demonstrates it in a real way by dying for us, he does not. He doesn't fit in with our sense of the way the universe should be. Which is why I suggested earlier <coughs> that these two verses may be the most terrifying in all of Scripture. Scripture. We are so insistent on a God who is going to ultimately act like us and not like this that we may just get to face such a God. And if we do, we might all be out of luck. You see, because if this is God, then grace is the only boat going to heaven. if we insist on a God who demands a transaction or a form of human justice or our own goodness because we can understand those things then it's going to be like standing on pier number two waiting for that boat to come in but it's never going to come in. And only people standing on pier number one who are waiting for grace and mercy and forgiveness. Pushing into grace for over 20 years now. Academically, theologically, scripturally, experientially, in relationship. And I listen to people and there's a whole bunch of reasons people reject grace. Even Christians. There's a lot of Christians that reject grace. Just listen carefully. And what happens, people reject grace or they modify it. And in the process they reject or modify the God that Jesus revealed. The two reasons that seem to be the most universal, and I even find them creeping into my own life lot, are these. Number one, most people reject grace because it is unfair. You see, the only people in heaven are unjust people who have accepted God's forgiveness for free. But we humans need to know that there is a rationale for people to be in heaven. Whether it's passing a knowledge test, doing the right things, giving the right amount of money, being in the right church, etc., etc., etc. We need to know it's fair. Even the other day, we had an interesting conversation of pastor of another church and I, and we both absolutely agreed: for by grace you save through faith it is not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works. But we really didn't agree. Became apparent that there was some sort of test that needed to be passed. Had to do something to get God to forgive and accept you. Grace is not fair. God does not follow human rules. When I lived in Southern California, I had the good fortune of befriended by a man who early in his life had been convicted of murder one. He had spent a lot of time in prison and he had finally earned his parole. I have never met a person who so radically trusts in God's grace. Ever. He woke up knowing every day of his life he did not deserve forgiveness. He did not deserve mercy. He had killed someone in cold blood premeditated and every day he trusted that God was merciful and it was so evidenced in his life post prison, this guy would do anything for anyone he lived as Saint Paul said put the good of others first he never thought of himself he just lived for them what was interesting is there were a number of Christians in the community that had a lot of trouble with this guy And really at the end of the day it just came down to if you live a pretty good life it's not fair that someone like that should be in heaven too, right? It's not fair to reject grace. The second biggest reason we reject grace because of the human need that I have discovered is the human need to explain everything. (coughs) We struggle to wrap our heads around this and therefore we reject it. Or we develop all sorts of qualifiers for it because we can't explain it. There is a reason that I think Jesus is unique in all the understandings of God. Because he ultimately defies human life. You can't fully explain grace. At some level you just have to believe it. That's my personal story. as I've come to have a, what I believe is a concrete faith in Jesus as God is simply because I can't wrap my head around them. all the other understandings of God that I have been presented with in my life and explored in my life, including many ideas of the Christian God. I can wrap my head around, them. and I'm not convinced I want to worship someone as Creator and God that I can wrap my head around. Them. I'd like Him to be a bit bigger than me. I can't wrap my head around. Them. I think this is either the imaginings of a man as mad as a hatter, or this is the fall on your face and worship and fear and trembling reality of a divine love. And I know I just said we can't fully explain grace, but I do think we can have a good working definition of it. Jerry Sitzer has a great one, and I think this will help us. Jerry Sitcher writes, Grace then is not a static, lifeless concept. <laughs> Many of us are mistaken to think that grace is more like a warm cup of milk than a cold mountain stream, or more like a cozy womb than loving parents who expect the best of us. God does not accept us the way we are so that we can remain that way. God's grace is not merely a tepid, sunny environment. It is a cold shower, a bolt of lightning, a carefully wielded scapel, a kick in the pants, a passionate embrace, because God wants to make us Not nice, but new. Not decent people, but true disciples. He will settle for nothing left. I think that's what grace is about, and I think that's what this parable is all about. Here, I've given you grace. Now go live it. Live in radical relationship with me, and then live in radical relationship with others. If we believe that Jesus is God, and His kingdom is about unconditional love and mercy and forgiveness and grace, then I think we're going to live into that, or at least want to try. We will be faithful to that. We will enter into radical relationship with Him and others. We will, as He often said we must, take up our own cross, Or as St. Paul says, seek not our own good, but the good of the other. So that even when we don't want to forgive, or show mercy, or live grace, we will. Because it is what our King does. It is what our God does. It's one of my favorite worship songs that they did this morning. That line, I'm here to say that you are my God. Well, if we are looking at a God who died for his ends, a God who put others first all the time and calling him our God, why would we live another way? Why would we hide what he has given us? Maybe it's because like this servant who is not faithful, we still insist that God is more like us. A bit transactional. A bit punishing. A bit vindictive. A bit judgmental. A bit pedantic. Maybe that's why we run and hide. But for me personally, I believe his king is coming back. I believe his name is Jesus. And I really do believe he'll be sailing a boat called Grace. In the meantime, for all of us who believe this, let's be about trying to live into grace the way he asked us to. May God help us.